Hi everyone and welcome to Industry Insiders, the show brought to you by Edinburgh College which gives expert advice and inspiration whatever your career goal. I'm Jack and today's episode is all about games development. I'll be talking to Tony Gowland, a professional game designer who has previously worked for Outplay Entertainment and Rockstar North. Tony has since founded Ant Workshop, a game development studio based here in Edinburgh. So uh, thanks for coming along to speak to us Tony. No worries Um, man, thanks for having me. First of all, just want to hear about you and uh, your experience of um, getting into games development. So what sort of things were you into at school and when did you know you wanted to become a a games designer? Uh, Yeah, so I have kind of always been into computers and always been into computer games. Uh, My first computer uh, was an Acorn Electron, which is now a very, very old computer. Um, (laughs) And I used to play that on a little black and white uh, screen um, and it was very good, and you used to have to type in like listings off of magazines, and it wasn't a particularly, it wasn't one of the flashy ones like the Spectrum or the Amstrad, so it, there wasn't as many games available for okay. it. So you'd kind of spend a bit more time uh, trying to figure out like how to how to make your own stuff. Um, but yeah, like kind of, I've always been into computers, and computer science has always been my strongest subject. Like at school, so throughout my GCSEs and then my A levels, um, and then I went to university and did a computer science degree. Um, and it was kind of while I was doing that computer science degree, like, and I, I hadn't gotten into that specifically for like kind of video game stuff. Uh, the video games had always just been like a kind of something that I was interested in okay. alongside. Um, and it was while doing that degree, I kind of got into like level designing. So it's like you'd uh, like a game like Half-Life or uh, Quake or something like that. There were tools where you could make your own maps for them. Right. Okay. Um, and I would spend some of my evenings kind of making these maps. Um, and it was while I was in my final year at university, um, I was applying for jobs at banks and Sage and all of these kind of places like, like you're meant to. Um, and at the same time um like a a game like a little game studio in like in in one of the sort of nearby cities um they went onto like one of the uh counter-strike mapping forums that i used to go on to and post my maps onto um and they posted a thread saying hey we're we're making this fps game we're looking for level uh designers uh if you're interested please kind of get in touch and i just yeah like just uh, like uh, kind of just on the off chance i thought oh go, go on then yeah that would be why not i'm like i'm applying for all these banks and stuff i might as well apply for that it's still a job as well um and yeah and that was you're like passionate about as well oh so. yeah absolutely um and yeah so i I, uh, I got that like that's kind of how i got into it oh okay that's interesting <laughs> it's, it's funny how these things can sometimes just come about um, so thinking about your, your role now, what is a typical day in the life of Tony Gowland, the games designer? Uh, um, so because so kind of things have changed as I've moved through my career. So like when I first got a job as a level designer, uh, it was very much like, OK, you'd get told hey, this is the level that we need you to make. Uh, you would do some of the artwork for it. You'd do some of the scripting for it and all of that kind of thing. Um, my job now, because I run my own company um i still do some of that kind of developing stuff but then there's loads and loads of other kind of like like a a games company is still a company so there's things that you have to do like accounting and um legal things and yeah just like really really boring stuff that no one wants to do but you have to do um and like 
business development thing. So like we do as well as developing our own uh, our own games and like our own unique IP, uh, we also do a lot of console porting for like other indie developers. Um, and so kind of getting in touch with people and getting those relationships going and kind of hunting for those bits of work is also sort of something that I do. Um, Cause Ant Workshop, so Ant Workshop is my company. Um, it's still, we're four years old and it's still okay. quite a small company. Okay. Um, with there's, there's two of us that work there full time now. Um, right. Okay. So we, like I still take on like a lot of roles that like at a, as the company grows, I would see that it's like other people would take on some of those roles. Yeah. So things like the business development, there's often people have like a, 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 someone that just does that or like at the moment I still do kind of code and design stuff as well. Um, whereas like in a lot of companies, those roles are sort of split off okay. a little bit more. They maybe um, teams for each and some organizations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, so if you looked at like a company like Rockstar, it's like this absolute like huge company that has like a management structure for each department. So you've got like a design department, a code department, an art department, audio, and and then each one of those has their own management structure. And then like at the top of the chain, those like leads are talking to each other as well. And um, yeah. yeah, so like at, at the moment, my, my days are kind of very, very mixed and the actual amount of game development that I get to do every day, like it's a really good day. Um, so I use like time tracking software to see what I'm doing. And if I ever find a day where I've managed to spend like eight hours just sat at my desk doing development, that's a fantastic day. I yeah. love those days because it's like, <laughs> that's still the stuff that I like. If it comes down to it, that's what I yeah. want to do. So you um, do get to keep your hand in quite a bit. Well, when you can. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, I would, uh, I, I don't think I can foresee I say that. I don't think I can foresee a situation where I wouldn't end yeah. up doing any development at all because that's the bit of it that yeah. I kind of, yeah. that's the bit of it that I love more than anything else. So is that quite a challenge for you then to sort of transition from being that full-time designer and developer to running the business now? Was it like quite a lot of new things to learn or was it stuff that you already knew? And Yeah, I mean, so like kind of the first year of, of being an indie developer and of being self-employed, um, like that was, there was a huge amount to learn then. I mean, I'm don't get me wrong. It's not like I know what I'm doing. Now. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's still, there's still like loads and loads that I'm learning kind of, uh, every month, but that initial kind of jump from, okay, like, cause most people, it's like you, you go to work and it's like you, when you start that job, you tell HR what your, um, what your bank details are. And then the money just turns up in your bank account at the end of every month. And it's like you get your pay slip and you don't really think about it. And they tell you about like, oh, here's your pension contributions yeah. and blah, 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 blah. Um, but yeah, you don't really think about it that much. Um, but the flip side of that is like once you're a freelancer or like once you're uh, self-employed or whatever, you have to think about like, okay, I need to do these accounting. Uh, HMRC needs to know how much money the company's got coming in i'd like we need to sort out taxes we need to are we earning enough money to be vat registered should we be vat registered what are our vat returns ah that is awful yeah uh, <laughs> what to think about right enough um so you said you mentioned that there's um one other ant workshop what sort of what do they do uh yes yeah, so ant workshop uh so i up until now um 
it's been myself and then I've used like a lot of freelancers for things. Okay. So like I said, like I'm, I'm kind of more from a sort of design and with a, like a technical design, like a design with a bit of code sort of background. Um, but I've never been very good at art uh, or like I can't make music and all that sort of stuff. So we've always had the, like we've always used freelancers for certain bits and pieces of the games. Um, and just like as, as the company has steadily sort of grown. So we like when we did our first game uh, and then we did like a second game, that's a, a much bigger game. Um, and then we've been doing like these kind of, like I say, we've been doing this work for hire and like console porting stuff alongside okay. it all. Um, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's like, hang on a minute, there's, there's too much stuff here. Like there's too much work coming in for me to do it all by myself. Uh, so yeah, so recently, uh, taken on like our first kind of full-time employee that isn't me um and he's a lovely man called martin um <laughs> and he is a coder so his like his background is like he's been in the games industry for about four and a half years um just working like kind of code okay. a bunch of places because like i said that's coding is one of the roles that you that we kind of most consistently need for what the company is doing. Um, so like whether we're making our own games or whether we're porting someone else's games, uh, we always need kind of like, there's always a coder involved in it and whether that's me or someone else. Um, whereas things like art, like if you're porting a game, like all of the art, art yeah. is already done. So we don't necessarily need artists at that point you don't need them all um, the time but you can sort of exactly them in as, as and when that's sort of basis that's yeah. yeah that's exactly it um so still like because the company is still quite small and quite young um like i don't want to get like staff in that we don't necessarily need all yeah. of the time yeah, I no, mean, that makes yeah. perfect sense um, so yeah so so uh yeah martin martin does code Good stuff. Um, so what would you say then is the most challenging thing about your job? I guess you've maybe covered some of that already. <laughs> in the... um, so I think the most challenging thing is probably is probably like the kind of plate spinning and the planning side of it. Like the actual actual game development I find pretty relaxing. Like it's really frustrating if there's if there's a bug in a piece of code and you can't figure out that like where that bug is. Um, but it's still generally generally a, a bit kind of predictable um i would like the stuff that i find challenging yeah it's like it's like the kind of planning so it's like okay at the moment we've got uh pro one project that we kind of we're just coming to the end of we've got another project that we're just at the start of um and then we've got other kind of pieces of work that we're chatting to people about but none of it is kind of signed yet so having that sort of idea of like, okay, how are all of these pieces going to fit together? And like, what bits is Martin going to work on? And what bits am I going to work on? And when might we be free? And do we need somebody else to do this? Or who can yeah. I get to do that? And like, which artist do I need? When do I need people? And like Just all of that all kind dots. of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, and then like, you'll, you'll maybe think that you've got something planned out and then like, you'll get an email from a customer, like from a player or something where they go like, Oh yeah, I was doing this. And then it, the game, all my save data has vanished. And you're like, Oh no, we need to quick, let's dive on. We need to fix that. And so it's like, all of a sudden, like, um, like those, those <laughs> absolutely like the worst one. Like if you get an email from like some player in America or something, so it's like you'll wake up and you look at your phone in the morning, like you just got out of bed and like 
there's an email coming at like half past two in the morning or something going like, oh, yeah. right. and you're like, right, well, everything that I thought I was doing today is out the window. The I need to, yeah, yeah, I need to kind yeah, of sort that thing out. I guess customer experience is, is paramount as well at all times, isn't it? That's got to come. Yeah, to absolutely. Come Especially for like a, for, because we're such a small company, it's, um, it's really important to us that kind of people enjoy our games and that they want to play more games by us and like that kind of thing of trying to build up your reputation in that way. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say then is the most rewarding thing about games development or your current job? Um, I mean, the, the most rewarding thing by far is when, like, when you get reviews of like people play, like when your game actually comes out and you get these like reviews from players sort of saying like, Oh yeah, I, I love this. Like, um, so our current game, Dead End Job, just released um, a couple of weeks ago. So, like, we're in that bit where it's like you're starting to get all the reviews are kind of coming through, and it's like you're looking at them, and people are going like, "Oh yeah, this game's amazing!" Like, I really recommend other people download this. It's fantastic. I really enjoyed it, and blah blah. And it's like that's the stuff where it's like, yeah, knowing that people, like, knowing that people are playing it and enjoying it, um, and we like we always try and put like a few like little kind of hidden Easter eggy bits in the game. Um, and in dead end job, like there's some hidden email addresses that are in it. Um, and they all go to actual email accounts where it's like, so if someone emails that character in the game, um, using their real email address sort of thing, it's like, they'll get like a sort of auto response from that character. Um, and I sort of put them in kind of not really expecting anything. Uh, but yeah, like, we've had people sort of like send emails to those. Um, and it's just, it's really cool to know that people have enjoyed the game enough that it's like, they're wanting to kind of, yeah, um, yeah, kind of like get, get more involved in it and stuff. So yeah, that's by far the most rewarding stuff. Can you think of the best review you've ever had? Um, no, I can't. (laughs) I can remember. I, I remember the worst review that I ever had. Um, of so when I worked at a different company, um, we made a game that was kind of like a it was based on like a kid's IP, um, and it was not a particularly good game. It got really bad reviews, but one review in particular said that if you buy this for a child, it will ruin their Christmas. Oh, yes, yeah, so that was <laughs> That's uh, brutal. Yeah, not one of my games, just a game that I worked on. It wasn't, I was, just, I was just, a, yeah, I just worked on one little part of it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> but and that is that review has stuck with me now for about fifteen years. Right. So that's well, good. <laughs> I guess that gives you motivation to make sure that every game you work on is, is yeah. spot on. Yeah. yeah, I mean we've not had <laughs> anything. Sorts of reviews, we've not so. had anything that bad from like any of our like any of our <laughs> workshop stuff. So, um, so looking at the industry as a whole, um, do you think it's changing at all, or? if there's change to come in the next five years, what do you think that might be or what might the industry look like in five years' time? Uh, yeah, so I think, I mean, the games industry is, it's quite cyclical. Like, um, I think, like, the, the kind of, the console generations almost, like, enforce, like, every 10 years, like, or the the PS1 comes out and then 10 years later the PS2 comes out and then the PS3 comes out. And, like, that almost, like, forces, like, a, a like, a, and like kind of a built-in level of like change into the industry um just in terms of like when the so like the sort of fidelity of the game steps up so it's like to make the same quality of game almost it's like you need more people and you need more money um okay. but then 
like the tools change a bit and make things sometimes the tools make things a bit easier so it's like okay exactly what types of people you need and what skill sets people need change um and so it's always very dynamic um i think a lot of stuff is change has been changing in games in the same way as like with all tech like sort of streaming stuff has it kind of has massively changed or is it about to massively change like how people buy games i think so you look at things like xbox game pass or apple arcade and like these kind of subscription services um they've very much changed the the kind of way that people are interacting with games like even like when mobile phones came out and then like free to play games came out and yeah. that became like a big thing it's like it suddenly free to play fundamentally changed like those whole new skill sets that were involved in making games that hadn't previously been involved in them. So like with free to play games, there's like a lot of uh, analytics and kind of like data crunching of like, okay, where like what bits of these games do people find difficult and stuff like that, where like, and maybe there was always used to be a little bit of that, um, but it's, it was never as big as it is now. Um, And yeah, like kind of over the next sort of five years or so, I think that, I think that that's that sort of stuff is kind of going to going to like really come to the front. Like I think Apple Arcade, um, with the the with Apple's subscription service, I think it's going to make releasing premium games on mobile, but that aren't as part of Arcade. I think that's it's going to make that even more challenging than it's already been. Um, and I'll be interested to see if, for example, like Nintendo or Sony, kind of go follow uh, follow Microsoft in doing things with Game Pass. Um, and then, of course, you've got things like State, like Google Stadia, where it's, again, it's like these streaming services, and the idea is that you'll be able to play your games across multiple different devices, and it, it needs different skill sets from the developers. And, yeah, um, with, with all things, I always kind of come back to the idea of, like, yeah, but how do developers make money out of it? Um, there's... Indie development is is very tough, and as I think has has always been tough, but the way that it's been tough has changed. So it used to be that very because the, the tools weren't as uh, accessible. It used to be that not as many people were kind of making professional quality indie games, um, but that meant that the people that did could get them onto platforms like Steam or PlayStation and whatever. Um, whereas now the tools have adapted so that it's much easier to make professional quality things. That means that more people are doing it. So now the challenge isn't getting your game onto those platforms. The challenge is getting people to actually buy your game once it's on those platforms. It's a busy market. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, and I think that that's, I think that that will, that kind of direction is is going to increase. Um, and I think it's, I yeah, I could easily see, in like sort of indie games becoming kind of uh, narrowing down a little bit again. So like, I think at the moment there's, there's a huge boom in the number of people that are like professional indie developers. Um, I think that over the next five years that might shrink back down again as like, as the, as the situation gets tougher and tougher um, people that kind of, that don't have a rep or that don't have, something kind of ready to go um yeah might might try, uh, might struggle with that okay
Brilliant. Um, so you talked a fair bit about skill sets changing in that last answer. Is there what would you say are the sort of the main characteristics of someone that wants to get into games development? And also, you mentioned changing skill sets, but is there is there things that people should always have, or not not necessarily <laughs> have, but um, they, they should be willing to, to sort of I think, to get to get. Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you. If you want to get into games, it's you need to be kind of adaptable. You need to be looking at where things are going and what t- types, not necessarily what types of games are coming out now, but like kind of what types of games might be coming out in five years' time and that kind of thing. And that, yeah, having that kind of adaptability. Um, so you look at, again, like look at, for example, um, in sort of 2005 or whatever, all games were 3D. Like previously, like Super Nintendo and like Amiga and all that sort of yeah. stuff, everything was 2D. And then the PlayStation came out and then there was kind of a mix of 2D and 3D. And But then by PlayStation 2, it's like everyone was very fixated on everything has to be 3D. Um, but then with the indie games sort of stuff coming up again, it's like there's a real, there's been like a real bloom again for like kind of pixel art and like high quality pixel art and that sort of stuff. Um, so people kind of having that vision for um, what kind of art styles are kind of coming up and what kind of tech and stuff is coming up. Um, I think that that's the sort of thing. Yeah. Just like being, being adaptable really um, like it's not an industry that sits still. And I think if you tried to, if you, tried to just do the same thing over and over again. Um, don't think it would work out for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so obviously you've had a um, a fairly long career in the industry now, um, worked <laughs> at various different places. Um, what would you say is the best piece of advice anyone has ever given you for your own career? Um, I think... I mean, so there's a few different kind of, I'm not sure whether it's advice necessarily, but um, one of the things that's always stuck with me is someone once said to me, like, it's not about, so there's so much luck involved in being in the games industry. Like if um, having the, like this, almost like having the right thing at the right time or being in the right place at the right time, like some of my, like um, when I went to work for Rockstar, I wasn't particularly looking for that job. Um, but the previous company uh, went into administration. So I got made redundant and then it's like, okay, now I'm looking for jobs. And it that just happened to me at the same time as Rockstar's, <laughs> this Rockstar studio, um, they, they were just about to start ramping up development on something. So they were looking for like half a dozen uh, technical designers and it's like, oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay. That's like, it was, it was, a, and it, yeah, and it's having like that level of, that level of like kind of look of that you're in the right place at the right time, or you've got the right thing at the right time um, is, is I think pretty pivotal, pivotal to success. Um, But that's, and so why, like you can't necessarily control how lucky you are or like, or, or that you are in the right place at the right time. You can, like you can't control the outcome of those rolls of the dice, um, but you can, influence how many rolls of the dice you get um so it's if you're some like if you don't interact with other people like, with other developers and stuff at all like if you don't kind of network with people um 
you might not become aware of opportunities that are available. Like if you don't, if you're not reaching out to people and just like chancing your arm a little bit, um, there are maybe opportunities that you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to get um, like with, so one of the things that was good for us was that we got um, into Nintendo switch development quite early on. um, And that came about because I organized a meeting with uh, the rep from Nintendo about releasing Dead End Job on the Switch um, and they'd liked it so they said oh yeah we'll, we'll definitely allow you to do Switch development um, and then because we'd got that like I suddenly thought one day like well why don't we just why don't we put our last game onto the Switch and then we did that so then I reached out to like some other people just kind of going, like wow. some other indies that I knew just going like okay we've just done this and it was pretty cool um, why don't you try do, to do, do well I was like do you want us to also like do you want us to do your game on the Switch as well like we can work out a bit of a deal where like it works out quite nicely for yeah. Um and reaching out to those people like if yeah like of the people that you reach out to sort of like asking if if they want to kind of do that sort of deal with you you get a lot of people that aren't interested but at the same time like you only need to get one or two people that are interested and you're on a roll kind of thing. Um, so it's very, yeah, very much that thing of that you just need to, you need to try and line up those dice rolls for yourself. Yeah, so it's a lot about being proactive, really, not just sitting still. Just yeah, absolutely. absolutely yeah. As as possible. Absolutely, Um, okay, um, so some of our current games development students have sent us some questions to ask you. Um, so here we go. <laughs> um, should I start applying to studios straight away or should I focus on indie work for my portfolio? Um, so with that one, I would say it's, I mean, it's difficult to know what they, what they mean by straight away. Like, I think as soon as you have a portfolio that you think is quite strong, uh, I would start applying to stuff. Like, I don't think there's... Portfolio, to my mind, portfolio is kind of everything in in a game's job application, like whether it's coding and you've got like a little game that you've made or whether it's art and you've just got like a portfolio of uh, assets that you've done and that kind of stuff. Uh, Portfolio is kind of everything. So like as soon as you feel that your portfolio is is in a good place, um, I think it's worth reaching out. Like that's the point that I would start applying to places. Should portfolios cover sort of different elements, as you say, not just coding? Should it be artwork and stuff? Different well, various, I, th- I think, I think, yeah, I think for work. each person, I would like, I would focus a portfolio, like, I would create a portfolio for not just for the, the job that you want, but also that particular company that you're applying to. So, say you're an artist and you've you've got quite a broad range of styles yeah. that you can do. Um, you wouldn't necessarily create a portfolio that's got all of those art styles in it and send it to a, send that one portfolio to every company. Um, cause for example, so say you've, say you've got, um, you like drawing, I don't know, manga or something, and you're really good at drawing manga. Um, a portfolio that's got loads of manga in it isn't necessarily going to impress anyone at Rockstar because that's not the art style of their games. Okay. So it's um, all about tailoring the portfolio. Yeah, exactly. Just... So it's like, you can, you can kind of, you, there's no rule to say that, you have to have one portfolio that you send to everyone. It's like if if you can create stuff that is that specifically says to a company like, "Hey, this is why my skill set is is applicable to your company." I think like one of the most famous examples that I can remember hearing of was um, there's a, quite a famous 
um, adventure game developer who, for his job application um, to this to this company that made adventure games, he made an adventure game of him applying for that job. Really? And yeah, it was basically like That's the so game common. was like this little point and click adventure game of applying for a job at that company and like having to answer the interview questions right. And it's funny and kind of inventive and it was basically like it was him proving that he could do the job that he's applying for. That's really clever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that kind of like gimmick, like novelty gimmicky stuff uh, would always work, but certainly, certainly, uh, yeah, I think the, the underpinning thing of that, that portfolio was perfectly suited to the company that he was uh-huh. applying for, I think okay. is, is universally true. Brilliant. Um, next question. How easy is it for a college graduate to get their first job? Um, so I, I, honestly, I don't know. Um, I'm in my forties now. Oh dear. Um, so it's been quite a long time since I, since I was at college. Um, I I think it's, the games industry is very competitive. There are a lot of people that want to get into games. Um, there are a lot of, there are also like a lot of universities and a lot of colleges that do game specific courses. Um, and, like every year, those all of those institutions kick out more people, uh, like more graduates come out of those than there are actual open positions in the UK games industry, like every year as well. Um, so, like immediately, you're kind of you you are competing with other people, and but and then there are also people that are already in the industry that are kind of wanting to move roles, or maybe so there's companies sort of shutting down or whatever, and so I think it's, I think it is probably pretty tough. Like, I think that like it's definitely challenging. Um, like I know whenever we put out like an, a, a little kind of like advert on Twitter or whatever saying, Hey, we're looking to hire someone or we're looking for a freelancer to do, to work with. Um, I think so I've, like, like I've just put out a call on Twitter the other week for, or we're looking for a, a contact artist to work with on a thing. I got 45, no, uh, about 48 uh, applications through. Um, so it's one. like, it's, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's for kind of one, that's for just like one thing. So it's, it, I mean, it is, it is tough and like it, there's a lot of, there are a lot of kind of people vying for the same roles. Um, and I think sometimes it can be it can also be tough if you don't necessarily have experience. Um, like I'm not sure there aren't huge numbers of like sort of entry level jobs, for example. Um, so yeah, I think like I, yeah. Sorry, I think it's really tough. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, what should you consider when budgeting for an indie, indie game project? Um, loads of stuff. Uh, so kind of think about think about what platforms you are you want to support so if you're just doing like a pc game um life is a little bit easier because it's like usually like if you're releasing a game on steam you don't have to have uh, age ratings but if you're releasing a game on consoles well for one you have to get hold of console dev kits which is maybe a thousand euros a piece kind of thing um but also, yeah, you have to get uh, age ratings. And sometimes age ratings are free and sometimes they're not free. Uh, okay. There's 
Yeah, the marketing, like, I mean, marketing is a big one. No one ever thinks about marketing, but the games, like, it's so tough. There are so many games coming out now. Um, you probably want to try and budget, like, some kind of, like, get marketing professionals and try and put some kind of budget at, I don't know, at least, like, half the kind of, half the same amount of money that you've spent on actually making the game again. Um realistically kind of more than that um yeah i don't know music code art uh marketing localization is another one um so like if your game is just in english it's that's fine but like there's so much data now about like that there's so many uh like russian speaking players and like chinese uh players and stuff like that and it's like yeah and it's like look if your game You've got to imagine it's like, yeah, okay, those they can like, thankfully they can kind of understand English to some degree or something. But it's like the game will be much more appealing to them if they can just play it in their own uh, in their own language. Um, and yeah, so localization and implementing localization and implementing it well, and then you need to get localization QA because the chances are like if you're if you've made your game so that it's got like Russian text in it, the chances are you probably can't read that Russian text. So you don't know whether something has gone wrong and it's not displaying the right bit of text at the right time or any of that kind of stuff. So then you kind of need to get localization QA, um, general QA. So like that's quality assurance where it's, it's just making sure that the game isn't broken and that it does what it's meant to do. Um, and then, yeah, I would, and then, like I generally put like a kind of 15% sort of wriggle room on top of everything. So it's like, I, I kind of budget down like every month, what do I, which people do I think I'll need? And like kind of what are the costs of this month? And then multiply the whole thing to like add an extra 15% on oh, top okay. just to, cause there's, uh, like some months you won't spend that. And some months you'll spend way more than that. And, and you're like, like where's it coming from? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, but like budgeting, there's um, there is a really great book on uh, game budgeting that is called something like the Game Budgeting Handbook or something like that. It's an is it an orange book or a blue book? There's two. There's like a the Game Developers Handbook and like a um, budgeting handbook, and one's blue and one's orange, um, and the both very good, but yeah, they they go into stuff in a way more detail than I can. So they're recommended. Yes, definitely. Um, final student question: um, <laughs> Who did you bribe to get your first game job? Uh, <laughs> so my, I was given my first game job by um, a, a person who has been my friend ever since, um, and we still hang out a lot. And we still, he's now an indie game developer as well, and we. Actually, end up working together quite a lot. Like our companies, we've often joked that like we end up kind of working on each other's projects a little bit and kind of doing a lot of stuff together. Um, yeah, I kind of don't think I bribed him. I think we probably went out for drinks or something. So yeah, maybe maybe I um, ingratiated myself by buying around uh, <laughs> rather than just being sitting and and having all my drinks bought for me.
Um, so we're on to our final question of the episode. Um, big question. Where do you see your career in five years' time? Um, well, so my, my kind of plan, my hope is that um, we kind of continue with doing the sort of thing that we're doing, um, but on a slightly bigger scale. Like, I would love it if we can kind of, if we have like a couple of development teams with an ant workshop, we keep doing like the porting stuff that we're doing alongside. Um, I still get to keep my hand in a little bit. Um, but hopefully also employ some people to kind of do all of the stuff that I don't enjoy doing Uh quite so much. Um, And yeah, kind of similar to where I am now, but yeah, on a, on a bigger bigger scale scale. would, would be nice, but not on a huge scale. And like kind of 15 people or something would be, be yeah, just the right number of people so that you can kind of sit them all in one reasonably sized room and look at them all. That's, (laughs) That's the right number of people. That sounds good. Um, okay, thanks so much for joining us, Tony. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. We hope you find this episode useful. Tune into our next episode to find out which industry we'll be exploring next.